0: Alex, why did you, you know, why, why Tenet? Why did you decide to commit all this time and energy to this?
1: Yeah, I think the reality is just that, and we can talk about it later. What I've done before Tenet, but it led to what I think is just a couple orthogonal insights into what's going on with climate and just generally this sort of macro energy transition, and then the observation around legacy financial systems not really able to leverage its unique opportunities and the way that we categorize them is in terms of sort of unprecedented government tailwinds right you all of a sudden have this big sudoku puzzle for up to 800 billion dollars worth of ira tax credits and how do you actually solve that puzzle for the end customer and sort of unlock that dollar value on their behalf um the second bucket for us is you have this new generation of adjacent financial products. And that would be EVs as much as the rest of the renewable renewable energy product suite. Um, so chargers, solar, battery storage, and so forth. Either that's for consumers or commercial. Um, one, they're unbundling the traditional landscape. And then two, they drive really different and unique type of engagement because they're energy products, not just generic financial or consumer products. And then the third bucket is uh, capital and financial markets that all of a sudden have this effectively one way street towards ascertaining can I still make good economic returns while meeting my decarbonization mandates? And um, so putting all these three um, macro trends together for us was really then ultimately around how do we solve for aligning the interests of these different stakeholders? And that would be the customers, B2B platform partners, and financial institutions, and how can tenant become the fabric that really ties it all together from a financial perspective. And the reality is ultimately we want to help people save money, reducing their carbon footprint. That's really sort of the highest order objective. And then the way to implement that is in terms of defensible distribution when it comes to working with other B2B partners that have the customer relationships, or ultimately the um, distribution um, that is already established. And then financial institutions that actually have the balance sheets to be able to fund these climate assets. And right now we're just executing against how do we make that happen with EVs as a beachhead effectively um, into the broader climate space.
0: Yeah. I want to, you touched on a couple areas I want to go back to, but before I do, I'm curious, whenever you're talking with people outside the industry um, and they ask, you know, what is, what is tenant? Like, how do you break it down for them?
1: Uh, yeah, it, it obviously depends. Um, and, you know, if I'm, if I'm talking with my friends, right, it's like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I'm doing a climate fintech and like that side. And they're like, okay, cool. That sounds interesting. Um, and then the next order from there is, well, we're building financial infrastructure to, let people save money, reducing their carbon footprint, right? And ultimately building something around um, technology that unlocks economic efficiencies. And we can pass that back to the end borrower, the end customer um, in in the form of savings. And then the next more complicated version of that is um, ultimately we're a platform where we plug into the financial institutions and their balance sheets and provide scalable access for them to high quality climate investments. And we pass those better economic terms back to the end borrower through our B2B partner integrations. And uh, while well, there's sort of different permutations of that too, um, everything basically centers around financial incentives, right? We're a business that doesn't say we're going to plant trees every time you use our product. We're going to tell you, we're going to help you save money. And uh, ultimately financial incentives are what truly drive adoption and fundamentally just permanent change
0: yeah you touched on this a second ago but the auto industry in particular has kind of been a certain way for a long time right and then evs come along finally they start to catch on to the degree where you know they have a lot more interest i think from everyday uh people but you kind of made the point like these these things started to change, but not everything was changing with it. And mm-hmm. the way you shop for them, the way you buy them, I mean, the way you finance them, the way you charge them, like everything had the potential to change and in some cases had to. Yeah. Um, so what were the, what were the signs? Where did, when did you see like, Oh, there's a role for us to play here. Um, was there a pain point that you saw in the process or what, what was it that kind of mm-hmm. like really started getting your wheels spinning on
1: this? yeah the the very kernel of the idea behind Tenet was around looking at EVs and you know personally being interested in getting one as well as my co-founder and understanding very simplistically that the underwriting currently used by legacy providers was identical to that of gas cars. And the way that we we view them as their batteries and computers on wheels. and uh, they should be underwritten in a differentiated but also, proprietary weight, right? Something that's defensible going forward. And ultimately, and it's not that we do that, um, but ultimately the battery itself is a lower bound on the residual value of that vehicle because it can be recycled or repurposed. And what we did do actually, right at the beginning of the company for shits and giggles, um, buy a bunch of end of life Tesla batteries. And we repurposed that into a commercial grid storage application and uh, ultimately proved out that there's monetary value in in repurposing those batteries. And in general, that's an interesting business case, not for us longer term, but there's other industry participants that that are going down that route. And that kind of catalyzed this idea of how do we build a financing platform for EVs that really leverages the union attributes, which would be the residual value tax credits, grants, as well as ESG and, and, and climate capital markets with better terms. And um, in addition to that, unlocks just this broader universe of customers that really start their sustainability journey with their car. So they have this strong positive bias or predisposition towards wanting other types of renewable energy products. And the fact that we're starting a new asset class for capital markets. Currently on capital markets, you cannot buy an EV loan portfolio. The only thing that's available is Tesla lease securitizations, but ultimately we're finding really good product demand from these financial institutions because all of a sudden you're coming to them with something that's economically attractive, but also fulfills this sudden accelerating shift towards decarbonization. And for them, it's just a win-win situation.
0: Yeah, how much of it is just also the... What Digi- digit digitization of the buying process and not mm-hmm. having um, I mean, a lot of fintech is just reducing friction, right? In some cases, yep. some of that friction is at legacy costs that a new entrant doesn't have. You also have to build brand equity for the very first time, but you also yep. don't have all these legacy expenses, you know, that are creating uh, extra cost.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we think of it in terms of what happens before you finance with us and then what mm-hmm. happens after that. And just thinking about the first half, it's really around, okay, EVs do unbundle the legacy auto landscape. There's definitely the future that dealers are still gonna be around, captives are still gonna be around. A lot of the transaction still happens at the dealership, but it's also equally true that a lot more of this discovery, right? A lot of people are buying an EV for the first time Selection, ordering, and purchase process happens online in a typical e-commerce type of experience. And you're catering towards people that are ultimately not wanting to go to the dealership, get in the car, test around, then wait for a couple of hours, get the financing, and then you know deal with what is an adversarial process. They want to do it in the comfort of their home. They already most likely know what car they want. Um, and ultimately do everything end-to-end in a digital way. And so that is sort of the bread and butter, the table stakes stuff that we do anyhow, a seamless end-to-end digital UX where somebody can get through the entire process as fast as they can type. That is That has to be the case. Um, what is more important then is how do you factor into what makes EVs unique, right? And that would be how do you capture data on... The borrower and the residual value of the vehicle? How do you factor in tax credits and, and grants? How do you factor into the preferential pricing you get from your ESG Capital Markets partners? And tie all of that together as well into a financing product that actually impacts the monthly loan amount that people pay as well as the APR that they have to pay on. And then in terms of what lies after that is You've made this good decision, right? You're, you got this car, this EV, and there were either ethical motiv- motivations for it or economic because people do save money doing so. How do you then represent to that customer positive reinforcement where they can continue tracking their dollar and CO2 savings? Um, so we've built out our dashboard for our customers around allowing them insights into you've made this good decision, now you can actually track how well you're doing. You're kind of gamifying that experience and giving positive reinforcement, but also just better insights into how starting their sustainability journey with their car is letting them achieve their financial and and climate goals. And for us as a company, um, we receive data on how's the borrower and the car doing after the point of funding. A Wells Fargo, a U.S. Bank, a Bank of America, whatever, has no insight into what happens with the car after the point of funding. They give you the loan and they say, Justin, good luck. Here you go. Unless you crash the car, pay off early or there's fraud, we're not going to know what's going to happen with the car. And that just gives us proprietary data that we can turn into better underwriting over time, where we have unique proprietary insights into this new asset class, which is EVs. With unique attributes and features, and ultimately, there's a data flywheel for us to take advantage of, where we can just, for very likely, offer better and better terms to those customers as we get smarter about EVs.
0: That's interesting. Where do you? Where would you say you are at on this this journey? I mean, it, it, I would assume you'd say you're just beginning, although you've got a lot of yeah. time behind you at this point still. But where would where would you say you are in terms of where you want to be from, you know, the, the maturation of the product, the category, as well as, you know, people's understanding of what you offer, whether that's to consumers or even
1: to some of the, the key partnerships that you have? Yeah. Um, we're obviously still early. We're still significantly far away from being an ally or a Capital One or anything like that. But we're growing really quickly. Um, I can't give exact numbers, but ultimately we've 10 X our volume since October. Um, and that's a function one of tailwinds, right? The sort of like commoditization of EVs and you've seen the price cuts with Tesla and now Ford. And I think that's just generally the thesis panning out around value is go- value. Accrual is shifting from the manufacturing side to what is the financial rails, right? Really the sort of picks and troubles aspect of, of the, of the industry. And then in addition also just us refining the core product, which is what is the the user experience? What is the the value proposition for the end borrower, but also finding better and better ways to scalably distribute the product. And that would mean we now partner with dealerships, dealer software providers, mobility platforms, auto marketplaces, and so forth, where their highest growth segment is EVs. And we've built out a vertically integrated EV solution that helps them better cater towards that. So it's a really elegant win-win situation where um, at the end of the day, what we built out ourselves now is extremely useful for others. And um, by plugging in more deeply across the ecosystem, one, we have a better way of presenting our brand. Ultimately, people have to trust tenant with their money. right? We, there is a financial value proposition But two, also just gives us better access, better data, um, better resources to just continue doing what we do, which is how do we continually increase the savings that we can pass on to our customer? How do we build something that is engaging and delightful and helpful to them after the point of funding? And how do we grow our product suites beyond EVs? as an extension of helping people start their sustainability journey with that car.
0: Yeah. Who do you think was the, who do you, how do you classify some of the early adopters to this, or maybe the ones who are just so mm. uh, willing to, to try this initially when it was, you know, they'd never heard of it before, then they get exposed to it. And they're like, Oh, this is great. Yeah. Was it, was it more on the partner side? Was it more on the consumer side or something in between? Or what, yeah. what would you say?
1: So we started, we started direct to consumer. And I strongly believe that this is what was needed to start a company like Tenant. Typically, I'm skeptical of direct-to-consumer businesses, mm-hmm. especially lending first. That is you know, pretty well understood that that's a tough nut to crack. The difference is if you're trying to create a new asset class, which we are, EVs as a standalone investment did not exist, you have to be the one underwriting the asset class yourself in order to prove out the performance and the data and then be able to go to other stakeholders and align them. Um, and, and thus we did, right? But initially, right at the beginning, we went to market in a no-code pilot way with some of the Tesla car clubs around the country and just uh, gave them the value proposition of saying, well, your car is a battery and a computer on wheels. Um, it has better depreciation than gas cars do we can get better terms from financial markets and we're going to build a user experience that will just help you elevate how you think about your financial and climate goals. And that was a very, very raw, you know, MVP, sort of barely beyond embarrassing type of way to get started, but it's just right. What you need to incrementally de-risk the value proposition? And, um, as an extension, we've also built out what I'm, equally proud of really great ties with the community and the difference is we started out with evs amongst many reasons instead of heat pumps or solar and so forth is nobody's going to take a selfie with their heat pump but everybody wants to be associated with their cars and evs are something that people rally around and it's part of their identity and they're nuts about their cars so it's something that we can lean into and you know proudly we partner with um, a large number of car clubs, Tesla, and whatnot around the country, and just really want to help them grow.
0: That's cool. I, it sounds like you really found like the obsessive uh, group right off the bat who will probably not be shy to give you feedback, but also like quick to tell other people if it works, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it's funny because even one of our first five customers um, is now a colleague of mine at Tenet, and he's focused on community and originations, and it's fun to see it come full circle. Um, and in general, like you mentioned, these people are so passionate about their cars that they're also so eager to pass on feedback that ultimately just helps us build a better product. Yeah,
0: super so
1: one, they help us just put out the brand and the mission and, and really just the awareness around tenant. But obviously then this positive feedback loop of we get more of these word of mouth um, community members. And ultimately they just help us improve our product and, and our pl- platform.
0: Yeah. And if for some reason you had had this smooth road to start with like heat pumps, you wouldn't have, I don't think you would have been able to go the other direction, right? You would have had to rebrand yeah. as some other product Yeah, because it, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have cared, but you can go this direction. It sounds like.
1: Yeah. The, one of the other things, and that's only something I realized after the fact, this wasn't something that was apparent right from the beginning is Starting with EVs is interesting, one, because it's the largest and fastest growing subsector of the climate industry. That in and of itself is okay. But it's actually a really non-invasive experience for a customer to get started. If you get a heat pump or a solar, that means a three to six month process. You have to have people in your home. There's a lot of variance in terms of the transaction and in terms of ultimately what you get installed. So there's actually not a lot of room to iterate on as a company like Tenant. EVs are fungible. It's non-invasive. It's a quick experience. Um, ultimately, it has all the features that you need to just go to market quickly and test rapidly and grow quickly. And only then can you use that to effectively approach other sort of adjacent products that do have longer lead times and do have more friction in the installation process and so forth. I think to your point, it's very difficult to reverse engineer that um, because you have to use velocity really to get started building a company. That's the only thing that matters. Yeah. And if we're going to spend months with a handful of home installations to get started, we're just not going to get the data points in terms of the volume of data points to actually get statistically significant signals around how are we going to improve our product and our process?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm going through this process right now. It's a three month process. It's super manual. I'm literally getting texts today on it from a project manager. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it'd be messy. Plus there's a lot of different players, so many partnerships you'd have to forge, right? Like you're, yeah, you, you picked the right direction to start from uh, for sure. Your learning cycles will be far faster yeah. uh, this way, which is so critical. Like you said, what of, of the progress we've made today and you look back, what are some of the hurdles that you had to get over that you're like, okay, that was a big one. Really proud of the team for that. Uh, what what comes to mind
1: when you hear that? It kind of reminds me of what is a different form of the question, which is always around what's what's the biggest risk? What was the biggest risk sort of a year ago? How does that project forward? And it kind of answers the, the question actually, in the sense of because we're building a three sided platform, it's always around coordinating the interests of our three different stakeholders, customers business partners, capital markets. And um, to answer your question, it was always around how do we first, for example, acquire a couple million dollars worth of loans that we funded from our balance sheet from investor VC money that we had to raise to then be able to go to banks and credit unions and asset managers and show them the data around why they want to purchase those loan portfolios from us. And then that unlocks... Financial facilities, which we can then use to go to our business partners and tell them that we can originate so and so many tens of millions of dollars with them or hundreds of millions for them um, because of those financial facilities. So it's constantly a coordination game that we have to play where it's a function of the business. It's something that's systemic to it, but fortunately, something where once the flywheel really starts flying, that gets easier and easier over time. But thinking back more specifically, it's around really. Launching that first no-code pilot out of nowhere and knowing next to nothing back in the day, around what we're currently doing, um, it was around right hustling after every deal. Right, we used to just you know shout and, and 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 congratulate each other and pat ourselves on the back for every single loan that we booked back in the day. Um, it was around getting the first term sheets for warehouse financing less than a year after founding the company. Which in and of itself is, is, is frankly, pretty quick, relatively how, to how long it takes. Um, it is to our first business partnerships, our first dealer partnerships. Um, it's just always these first of their kind milestones where you look back and you can't believe that now you're just doing, you know, tens, hundreds, whatever, how many of them um, every day, every week, every month. But getting that zero to one is yeah. always something that will be nostalgic about.
0: Yeah. Totally. Completely. Um, I'm guessing along the way you had a lot of, um, people giving you well-intentioned advice. Um, did you have any advice that again, good intentions, but you're like, that's not us. That's, that actually is terrible advice for us. I mean, anything that comes to mind with that?
1: Um, interesting. Um, so I think ill-advised advice, um, would be probably focusing around how do we do something that ultimately isn't a core focus right now. And what do I mean by that? So distribution is king, right? If I can't sell the product, then no matter how good the product is, it doesn't matter. And ultimately, some sort of like poor advice has been around how do we already drive product expansion before we nail and scale defensible distribution? And that could be, for example, how do we already incorporate solar financing or some type of other adjacent product with the EV loan? When really what matters is how do we harden the distribution of the EV product in and of itself? So that it is a defensible customer acquisition wedge that we then ultimately monetize. And um I think that was also a learning process because obviously we get excited around, oh, what else can we do and how do we do that as quickly as possible? And there's so much money to make and, and revenue to unlock and whatnot. But I think constantly refocusing on what matters most and that being how do you distribute your product in the most efficient, scalable, defensible way is something that we we really try it and, and stay true to.
0: Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. I, I think if you want to put it down in really simplistic terms, you have product innovation, then you have distribution of that. Right. And what I'm hearing from you is, yeah, you got to innovate first. But you have to distribute it to a certain level before you really should be thinking about innovation again, because yeah. otherwise if you innovate, innovate, innovate now you got to distribute all of that. And that may be exactly. difficult to do and who gets, who gets to go first. Then you fight over resources and your value prop's muddy and mixed, right? Yep. And you have nothing to build off of because you're trying to do all that. So I, I completely agree with it. It's a balance between the two. And I, I feel like uh, every decade, we kind of the pendulum swings between which one we care most about. And I feel like right now it's in the product innovation side uh, and distribution comes second, uh, but it needs to come like to your point, like you have to do it and then you can come back and innovate some more, but like, don't do it too fast.
1: Yeah. I think it's, cyclical right like you say where you have to innovate but then you also equally have to notice and or even anticipate the inflection point of when you have to focus on distribution and then it swings again to the other side of when you have to innovate again maybe you paralyze it somewhat right it's obviously a gradient not a binary but i think too many people just focus on we have to perpetually innovate and you know, buyers will come, they will notice how good the product is, it will sell itself. What I've just learned, especially when it comes to fintech, and that obviously sort of probably differs with other types of industries, but specifically with financial technology and and software, distribution is just absolute king. You want to be part of the infrastructure, the fabric that other entities use to better conduct their business. And ultimately, that's also what we want to do ourselves, right? You look at companies that Um, across the board have incredible distribution, but you wonder how the hell does their product distribute or their product sucks? Well, it's because distribution is king. And um, I'm not going to name any of them, right? But there's obviously a litany of examples of, you know, publicly traded companies or private ones worth tens of billions of dollars. And you look at their product, their website, and you think, no way in hell would I buy this thing. But then you realize that their distribution process is just exquisite.
0: Yeah, it's so true. I mean, I, I think if that's a function of the emphasis on product is the engineers have a big seat at the table now. They didn't always have that. Uh, but to your point, we go out in the marketplace, there's a lot of stuff that's not innovative at all, but it's, yeah. it's sort of stuck there in that distribution that they've had for a long time. And so you have to unseat that. Uh, you want to be innovative. You want to be proud of like what you're putting out there, um, but it's got to get out there.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: What are there any misconceptions that people have whenever you're talking with either a consumer um, or a potential partner? Uh, Are there things where you say, no, I need to, no, that's a, that's a misconception or, Mm -hmm. or maybe there's a misunderstanding of what the value
1: provide. Yeah, I think absolutely. Right. And, and one, that's just because we're still very early and then two, because the industry is still nascent. First of all, it's just around auto loans. Auto loans are really boring to people. Nobody thinks about the auto loan industry, but there's $672 billion every year of new auto loans. There's 1.3 or $1.4 trillion of outstanding auto loans. It's actually huge. And the thing though is that this industry hasn't really changed at all in 30 plus years. So everybody has just become accustomed to a certain process of dealing with it. And you go to a dealer and they give you like 50 options and they price it up by one or two percentage points. That's how they make their money. And then they try and sell you into a warranty and, and then you pick up the car and that's that. And so one of the main misconceptions is like, okay, you're just another auto lender. And ultimately there's no differentiation there. And even more importantly, no proprietary defensible compounding edge when it comes to your underwriting. But with EVs, you actually have attributes that, quote unquote, expand the credit box, right? You have the tax credits and the grants, you have the residual data, you have the telematics data, you have um, climate emissions and so forth. Things where you can build data architecture that just gives you proprietary insight into variables that now impact how you underwrite and finance these assets. So that's one misconception. And then the other is around, um, ultimately, how do you actually build something that goes beyond cars, beyond EVs? And a lot of people don't realize that dollar and CO2 savings are the common denominators that not just apply to EVs, but to adjacent renewable energy products. And um, ultimately, all of a sudden, you can really tap into what actually motivates people to buy and adopt product. It's not what back when you had the you know, Tesla Roadster in 2013, where people were motivated basically just for ethics and they were willing to pay a premium for something, um, or you had the first solar installers and, and so forth. But everybody was really just motivated by sort of saving the planet, not really by saving money. Now, the early majority is waking up to the fact of, oh, damn, I can actually save money and I will also do good as a positive externality. So all of a sudden, you have this inversion in the value proposition that the market still seems to be a little bit sleepy on. And only now, I feel like that has really shifted into the sort of Overton window of awareness from a sort of media and from a political stance of we can actually proposition the entire industry as economic savings that also lead to climate benefits rather than just appealing to ethics when it comes to climate and you know, saving the planet and so forth, which the reality is just doesn't do it for the majority of people.
0: You're the early mover in this category. Where do you think it's going to go? What What, what predictions do you have down the road of how this evolves and matures and develops?
1: Well, I think in general, this is a one way street. I don't expect any reversion in the trend. I think we've already hit escape velocity when it comes to the growth and just simply already the size and saturation of the market. Um, In and of itself, EVs are already a really big market. If you do the math around EV loan volume, i.e. loans, not even leases, In 2022, that was around 70 to $80 billion. And uh, most people still think of it as maybe single digit, right? So if it's already at $80 billion, that's actually a multiple billion dollar revenue opportunity per year already. Now, if you sort of underwrite a couple of these market growth expectations, that should obviously multiply by 5 or 10x over the next 5 to 10 years. So all of a sudden, we have a tremendously large market. And if you project it out further around how does green or sustainable home improvements, home improvements in and of itself already being a $500 billion market grow, you have energy efficient mortgages that are now all of a sudden growing extremely, right? They're backed by Fannie Mae and so forth. All of a sudden, you actually get better returns for homeowners to incorporate these types of energy efficiency products. You're dealing with trillions of dollars. And even more interesting then is obviously around capital markets believing, which I do and the company does, around any type of credit investments in future will be evaluated through the lens of what is the climate impact? What is the climate adjusted rate of return of this credit investment? And you can look at green bond issuance, sustainability-linked bonds, right? How does a private placement market for that look like and so forth all of a sudden right your your TAM expands to you know tens of trillions of dollars obviously this is like very vc talk of mine and we have to put it back into reality but if you really think through it end to end you just come up with the conclusion that you're dealing with something that has extremely large market that is also serviceable not just addressable And the growth of the market in and of itself is just a rising tide that lifts all shifts type of situation where as long as we take the right directional bet, we have this good beta exposure and then whatever our product and distribution is innovating on, that's alpha that we can um, create on top of that.
0: I'm just trying to picture some of the conversations that you find yourselves in. And I would assume there's at times, car loans are a very understandable product. Like everybody's had one. And yeah. it's pretty simple to understand. So I could see uh, at times being in conversations where people are like, uh, "It's not broke, it's fine." You know, we don't yeah. need we don't need anybody's attention here. Um, at the other side, I could see people be like, "Yeah, of course." Like the whole ecosystem uh, ecosystem is changing, and there's roles for everybody to play. And yeah, there's a role here to play too, because there's enough things changing that a new solution built from the ground up for this new unique environment that we're in. Uh, given the way that of what we're buying, how we're buying it, uh, what happens to it over the life of it. Yeah, we need somebody to play. So I'm guessing there's a spectrum of those types of reactions mm-hmm. when you're in conversation, right?
1: Yes. And specifically when it comes to financial products, what we've realized is that you don't want to find something that is too different from what people are used to, right? If something is just actually orthogonal to what Risky. is common... It is risky, people don't trust it. Ultimately, you're, you're not gonna be able to actually convince people to do it. So we're not in the business of fundamentally shifting customer preferences and demand. We are rather leaning into what drives those preferences. And what drives those preferences is just, do I find something that is gonna be cheaper than what else is out there? Am I gonna have an experience that is superior And does it help me fulfill my goals around further savings in terms of dollars and CO2 and ultimately just creating a final form factor around my lifestyle or around my business? And if we would have done something that is just too different, that wouldn't have been good. I think we had to strike the right balance between how do we innovate? How do we actually leverage what makes them unique and represent that in a way that people are familiar with? but that still drives a fundamental difference from what else is out there.
0: Yeah. It's human nature. We just don't like, people don't like change and so you have to make the change palatable and small doses. And then over time you've made four of those little kind of adjustments. And then pretty soon now we're going a different
1: direction. Yeah, exactly. So you've,
0: you put in a lot of effort on this so far. You've got great progress, good momentum behind you. It's exciting times, busy times. What's been the most rewarding for you and the team?
1: I think for me personally, it's been the team. Um, The nice thing is, one, as an organization right from the start, we've made it so that culture and values and recruiting are just something that we over-index our time on. And we spend a ridiculous amount of time on it, but for good reason, right? Because you attract just people that are just so incredibly smart and driven and motivated and ultimately are what creates the product. And personally, people would always think, obviously he's gonna say that, right? Like he has to sort of say that, but I actually truly mean that, right? I I do have the opportunity every day to work with people that just grind it out, right? That work all day, every day. And purely because all the incentives are aligned, everybody's pulling in the same direction. And um, you know, for us, people know that, yes, they can make a lot of money, joining tenant and getting equity in the company, but also what they do does have that positive externality of you're actually doing something good. You're actually leaving something for your children. You're actually doing something for for others that increases socioeconomic wealth. Um, So it's a very good sort of two-pronged approach in terms of one, finding motivation for the current team, but also of course, helping with converting, recruiting candidates and so forth, where they see that they see the economic benefits, but also just ultimately the impact that they can have um, by by joining us. And so I think for me personally, that's the most gratifying aspect, simply also egotistically because, well, the people are what build the product and we need the best product, so we need the best people. Um, and I think for the team, uh, sort of observing it correctly, the best part for them has probably been just the direct feedback from putting work in and then seeing growth come out of it. And we ship really fast, we ship a lot and just tracking what you ship with the impact that it makes to the top line and the bottom line of the business is something that's probably extremely rewarding for them. That's cool. I have a feeling that there's
0: people who are listening to this who maybe have an upcoming EV purchase in their future. How could they find more about Tenant? Where would they expect to see that logo in the buying process?
1: Well, so they can come to tenant.com directly and uh, we'll help them through the entire process. And even if they're just curious and not even looking for financing, we have an excellent knowledge hub. They can just check that out to learn more. We cover basically everything there is to know about EVs just to help them guide them towards that um, purchase. So if they do not come to us directly, um, they can reach us through different mobility platforms that offer us dealerships, dealer software providers. We're obviously still growing our network and I don't think we'll ever stop. Um, at least that's the goal. But more and more, we hope that people see Tenet at the dealer or at the marketplace or the platform that they already trust, that they already know, that they already maybe have an account with. And hopefully they'll be positively, positively surprised that Tenant shows up and all of a sudden they can, um, yeah, take advantage of, of Tenet, um at the platform at the location that they're already familiar with.